Hi, everybody. Once again, uh, we're, this is our third and uh, final lecture on Southwest Asia and North Africa. And in this lecture, we're going to be looking at the geopolitical uh, framework of the region, as well as the economic geography in the region. Um, obviously, the geopolitical framework in this region is very complex and for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, geopolitical tensions remain very high throughout the region. Uh, ethnic, religious, and linguistic struggles uh, are very apparent. Uh, there's complex ties to European colonialism that remain significant, that remain a significant source of tension uh, throughout the region. Uh, and this is uh, mostly due because of the imposed political boundaries that the uh, European uh, uh, colonialists uh, inserted in the region. Most recently, American political power and influence is a source of tension as well. Um, and then, of course, we also have the geographies of wealth and power uh, within the region that also contribute to some of the tensions. So let's take a look at some of the, um, uh, the colonial legacy in the, in the region. Um, from 1550 to about 1850, much of the region was dominated by the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And then from about 1850 through the 1950s, uh, European, there was a European colonial presence uh, throughout much of the region. Uh, European colon uh, colonization came late to the region, as, as uh, you can tell. Uh, and um, uh, European dominance really took hold after World War I. And then, of course, the Europeans left in the 1950s. So as you can see from this particular map, we're looking at uh, some of the uh, uh, supranational organizations in the region. For example, the Arab League, as you can see, uh, obviously many of the Arab countries in the region. Obviously, Turkey uh, isn't a member of that because uh, it's uh, not an Arab country, uh, and neither is Iran, and of course, neither is uh, Israel. Um, and then you can see there's also hash marks here with uh, countries that uh, have experienced recent internal political uh, conflicts. Uh, so countries uh, you know, that have experienced the Arab Spring, so to speak, such as Egypt uh, and so forth. And of course, Iraq with its uh, many problems. Sudan uh, over the Darfur region, for one. And then also the split of the South Sudan from the rest of the country. Uh, as a result of ethnic and religious tensions. And actually, the Darfur conflict is also uh, very much an ethnic conflict, ethnic and religious conflict uh, between Arab, uh, Arab, uh, Arabs and Christians and uh, black Africans and, uh, and, and those that uh, of uh, Arab descent. Um, you can also see we have major uh, U.S. military sites that contribute to some of the problems particularly in Iraq, Oman, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain. Uh, and this uh, really uh, also contributes to problems within the region because uh, many of the Islamists uh, believe that uh, this is sacred land, and uh, particularly in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and so forth, and that the infidels from the United States shouldn't be in the area. And then, of course, the Kurdish problem that we've been talking about throughout the uh, this uh, series of lectures uh, is, is also significant. The Kurds are fighting for their own territory up in this area. And so we have uh, what are referred to as terrorist activities by the Kurds uh, in many of these countries, particularly in Turkey. 
And then um, we have the Iranian problem, uh, at, at least as, as the U.S. and the West sees it, the Iranian problem with its uh, nuclear facilities and its attempt to uh, supposedly uh, manufacture nuclear weapons. Uh, you can see some of the fundamentalist states. Obviously, Sudan would be part of that, uh, very, uh, fundamentalist. Uh, Iran as well. Both would be considered uh, theocracies in many uh, ways. Um, and then states containing important Islamist influences, as you can see, are outlined in red. So lots of different things going on in this region. Uh, so talking about the colonial legacy, uh, a little bit further. Um, the French in, uh, were uh, in Algeria from 1830. The French government wanted Algeria to become a key part of France. They actually wanted it to become part of France. They wanted the people to speak French and uh, adopt the French culture and so forth. France also established protectorates in Tunisia in 1881, Morocco in 1912, ensuring French dominance in the Maghreb. Um, so that uh, uh, kind of the uh, western part of this region was dominated by France. And if, if you recall, when we were talking about sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that's uh, the area that the French um, uh, dominated as well was the, uh, the uh, western, uh, northwestern part of sub-Saharan Africa. After France defeated Germany in the Ottoman-Turk alliance in World War I, it gained land in the Levant, Syria, and in particular Syria and Lebanon. Great Britain gained control of small coastal states to secure sea lanes from India. Uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, and the United Arabs. Aden in Yemen, uh, what, in what is today Yemen, was added also in this way. Uh, the British engineered and built the Suez Canal in Egypt, and it, this linked the Mediterranean and the Red Seas in 1869, and taking more control of Egypt, and, the, and the, then they took more control of Egypt and the Sudan in 1883 to ensure passage through the Suez Canal. After World War I, Britain engineered a creation of Saudi Arabia rather than a large independent Arab state to take the place of the Ottomans. And this was really a promise that the, uh, that the, British, and the, French, uh, the British had made, but they uh, conspired with the French uh, to break up the region into separate states. Um, the British were also responsible for the creation of Iraq, which is composed of three dissimilar Ottoman uh, provinces. And we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in, in an upcoming slide. So um, the three uh, dissimilar Ottoman provinces are Basra, which is the Arabic-speaking Shiites, um, and they would be largely found in the southern part. Uh, Baghdad, which is uh, more in the central part of the country, which are Arab-speaking Sunnis, and then uh, Mosul, which is in the northern part of the country as it exists today, which is Kurdish-speaking and Kurdish-dominated. Other European colonies, uh, Italians were in Libya for a short period of time, and the Spanish were in Morocco for a short period of time. Persia and Turkey, um, uh, yeah, Persia, which is Iran, and Turkey were never directly colonized. Uh, Britain and Russia established spheres of economic influence in both places, and they used these uh, two, two countries uh, kind of as a buffer zone between themselves and between their empires. So the Russia, was, Russia was in the northern part of the regions, the Brits were in the south. Persia technically was technically independent. Uh, uh, Ruler, uh, the ruler of um, Iran, uh, Reza Shah uh, Pahlavi, 
renamed the country as Iran to include all residents, not just speakers of Persian. Uh, the uh, Turks, led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, assured Turkey's independence against the French and the Greeks in the 1920s. Ataturk actually means father of the Turks. Uh, Turkish, uh, and uh, he really um, created uh, a Turkish nationalism. Um, Ataturk was a very forward-looking uh, leader of Turkey. He looked to the West uh, to help to modernize Turkey in, in, uh, in the Western sense, as I said. And Turkey is a secular, non-religious state. Uh, for the most part. Um, recently, they have elected to, as the prime minister, um, a more um, uh, Islam, uh, a more of an Islamist leader, uh, but Turkey still remains uh, fairly secular. Uh, when we talk about decolonization and independence, the Europeans began to leave the region before World War II. By the 1950s, most countries gained independence. Algerians fought against the French from 1954 to 1962 when they uh, eventually gained their independence. And if you ever want to see a great movie, uh, you should watch, uh, you should see The Battle of Algiers, which uh, is, a, is a movie. It's kind of a, um, I guess uh, what we would call today is a docudrama to, in a certain, uh, to a certain extent, but it, it's a really uh, good story of uh, the Algerian independence movement and how they eventually uh, were uh, able to gain independence from the French. Many, obviously, as in much of the world, many former colonial relationships created lingering problems in this region. Iraq freed from Britain in 1932, but internal conflicts created by British drawn borders uh, persisted. And actually, one of the things uh, that uh, we typically don't hear much about, uh, Saddam Hussein, was, who was obviously a very brutal uh, dictator and, and leader, actually helped to um, uh, uh, reduce uh, those internal conflicts, uh, but of course at the, at the price of uh, a brutal dictator. Uh, the, French partitioned of the, the French partitioning of Lebanon and Syria led to later internal conflicts in those countries as well. So some of the modern geopolitic, uh, geopolitics um, issues, political issues in the region, obviously the Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, this is a conflict that uh, has been ongoing uh, for a number, uh, too long. <laughs> I guess that's the best way I can, I can say it. And I, um, I, I don't know how it will ever end, quite frankly. Uh, I'm not really very optimistic. Uh, about how it will end, but it's a tragedy, and I don't care which side of the uh, you're on. Uh, this is, I guess, I'm editorializing, and maybe shouldn't do that, but it, it doesn't matter which side you're on. It's a tragic, tragic uh, thing, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict. So, how did this all start? Uh, well, uh, uh, Jews became uh, started to come back to this area. Remember, they were expelled from the area by the Romans, and uh, there were Jews that still lived in the area, uh, uh, but, uh, but very few. And Jews started coming back to the area in the latter part of the 19th century, in the, in the 1800s, uh, Zionist Jews, uh, looking for a homeland, a Jewish homeland. Um, and there were several uh, options for them. There were some options in Africa. Uh, the Russians actually established a, Rush, uh, a Jewish homeland uh, in uh, Siberia. Um, actually, the very southern part of Siberia. I'll point that out when we get to uh, that region of the world. Um, 
but the uh, but Jews uh, always uh, felt that uh, um, that Palestine was their homeland. Uh, it was the home for the Jewish people. And so the Zionist movement that began in the latter part of the 1800s, uh, Jews started coming back to this region. And of course, they started purchasing land from the Palestinians that were living in the region at that time. Uh, and then the Jews, uh, and uh, by 1917, uh, uh, the, uh, the um, uh, Balfour Declaration uh, was uh, by the British uh, created the state of, uh, was used to create the uh, state of Israel that eventually declared its independence in 1948. Now a little bit of background on the Balfour Declaration. If you think about what was going on in 1917, it was World War One, And World War One was really, at that time, at a stalemate. Um, the Germans were not advancing on the Allies. The Allies weren't advancing on the Germans. And it's thought um, by some scholars that the British uh, declared the Balfour Declaration, declaring Palestine as the homeland for Jews, uh, to get uh, American Jews to encourage the, gov the U.S. government to get involved in World War II, or I'm sorry, World War I. And shortly after the Balfour Declaration, uh, the Americans did get involved in World War I and actually helped to defeat the Germans uh, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, okay, let me see here. Uh, so we talked about uh, this area, uh, the uh, uh, Palestine is the home uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, when Israel declared its, uh, obviously the Arab Palestinians rejected this, and the conflict started after Britain left, uh, in uh, right after World War II. Uh, now you also have to understand that the Israelis um, wanted the British to leave, uh, but the British held a protectorate over this, over what is Palestine or Israel today. Uh, held a protectorate over it, and the Israelis wanted the uh, the British to leave, and so there. Uh, one of the things that we in the United States very don't often hear about is the Israeli terrorist terrorist attacks against the British that were occupying this uh, um, this uh, land at the time, and probably the one big incident uh, that uh, led to the British leaving the area was the bombing of the King David Hotel. Um, in the uh, right after World War II, uh, and so the British left, um, and the United Nations uh, took over, the, uh, oversaw the area, and in 1948, uh, Israel declared its independence. And of course, the uh, Palestinians uh, fled the area. Many of the Palestinians fled the area at that time. There were something like 900,000 refugees that fled the area uh, that Israel declared its uh, a state. Of its own, a country of its own. Many of those Palestinians fled to neighboring countries such as Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon. Arabs in the region saw Israel as a common enemy and a really a, a Western foe because the Israelis were strongly supported by the United States. Uh, this resulted in three wars in the region 1956, 1967, and 1973. Um, and as you can see from the map, so you can see. Uh, the British mandate, I'll point out some of these uh, maps here. The British mandate uh, that the UN, uh, well, it wasn't the UN at the time, um, it was the League of Nations, uh, gave Britain control over this territory, Palestine, as you can see. Then in 1947, the UN partition plan uh, set up uh, areas uh, uh, 
you can see the darker color is the Arab Muslim state uh, that the UN set up. So we have what is today uh, the West Bank for the most part, uh, the northern part of Palestine at the border of Lebanon, and then what's often referred to as Gaza in this area here, and then even down along the border with Egypt. And so this is uh, the territory as established by the United Nations in 1947. Shortly after that is when the uh, Israel declared itself an independent country and uh, went to war. And you can see what happened is Israel is this area here, essentially took over all the uh, much of the Palestinian territory or the Arab uh, Muslim state, uh, except for this piece that uh, Jordan uh, was able to uh, to take in that in the in the war that it followed the Israeli de Declaration of Independence. So uh, that brings us up to the 1967 war when Israel gained its most land. Uh, the 67 war was uh, fought against Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Uh, uh, Israel gained land in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, and this is the Sinai Peninsula right here. Uh, so they took the, they gained this territory from Egypt, uh, the Gaza Strip, and here, and this territory here, um, the Golan Heights area, which uh, is uh, uh, Syria was Syrian territory up in this area, and they still and the uh, Israelis still occupy this territory up in here, and annex parts of Jerusalem. And they also annexed parts of Jerusalem, as I mentioned uh, when we took a look at the city of Jerusalem. Um, the Sinai Peninsula was later returned to Egypt uh, when Egypt uh, recognized Israel as a legitimate state, a legitimate country. Uh, so there's been even more tensions, obviously, since that time. In 1987, we have the Intifada that began, uh, Palestinian uprisings, protesting, protesting Jewish, Jewish settlements on formerly what was what they considered to be formerly Palestinian lands. Uh, there was a tentative peace agreement in 1998, um, which strengthened the ability of the, of the Palestinian Authority to control um, transportation and policing powers in the Gaza Strip. Uh, that peace treaty also established goals for increasing Palestinian Authority autonomy in some uh, West Bank districts, including Jericho and Hebron. And we saw a photograph from Hebron earlier on uh, in an earlier lecture. And it laid out guarantees for Israel's security. And so since that time, obviously, we've had the second intifada that has resulted in, um, um, well, essentially Israel uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, later, but uh, has resulted in Israel uh, taking even more land uh, in the West Bank territory and also um, occupying uh, Gaza for uh, a period of time and then eventually leaving Gaza um, and then uh, really uh, restricting movement in and out of Gaza because of the, for the fear of terrorism. And we'll talk a bit more about that in an upcoming slide. So uh, after the 1967 war, you can see the uh, areas occupied by Israel, captured by Israel and returned to Egypt, and then captured by Israel, some Palestinian control uh, in these areas. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to date. Um, Israel also has 
uh, conflicts with some of its neighbors. Uh, Syria obviously is unhappy about Israeli occupation of, of the Golan Heights. And uh, if, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, there's a civil war currently going on in Syria. And there's a real fear of what will happen if the Syrian government falls and falls into the hands of more fundamentalists, uh, Islamist fundamentalists. There's, um, there's also a fear of what happens if uh, the Assad government in Syria does not fall and, uh, uh, and uh, regains uh, control over much of its country. So it's a really uh, tricky situation actually for uh, Israel what to do if they should intervene by bombing supply lines and those sorts of things which in this at this up to this time they have done a little bit of that and so forth but it's a really it's a really tricky situation for Israel and of course as an uh, ally of Israel it's a really tricky situation for the United States as well um, so as I said Syria is uh, unhappy with the Golan Heights, uh, Lebanese and Syrians are unhappy about Israeli occupying forces in the security zone in southern Lebanon, uh, which the uh, Israelis actually left in 2000, uh, but still have uh, a lot of troops massed along the border uh, with that country to prevent, uh, particularly Hezbollah, uh, that the Israelis in the United States and other countries see as a terrorist organization from uh, invading uh, northern Israel. Iraq is a potential enemy on the east, although with the situation in Iraq after the uh, 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 the removal of Saddam Hussein, uh, it's kind of questionable how much of a threat Iraq could pose to Israel. And obviously uh, there's been a, re reduce, a reduction in conflict with Egypt uh, as Egypt has uh, recognized Israel as a, as a country. And of course, the um, with Jordan also, uh, there's a reduced conflict and tensions with Jordan as well. So these are some of the uh, uh, these are some of the areas of uh, of Israel, as I pointed out. Um, so these are uh, the dark areas, the kind of this brownish or salmon color, are under at least at the time of this map, under full uh, or partial Palestinian control. Uh, and then the other areas are under Israeli control. And I want you to think a bit about trying to govern a country that is so fragmented uh, as the Palestinian areas are. It would be very difficult uh, to uh, be able to govern this frag very fragmented area uh, for a whole bunch of, area of reasons. Uh, you know, you're going to have a whole variety of different uh, um, you know, local conflicts that evolve between the Palestinians, let's say, for example, in the southern part of this area as opposed to the northern part. Uh, you're going to have uh, extensive transportation problems trying to unite this region, uh, to send goods from one part of the region to the other and so forth. And particularly since the Israelis control much of the, uh, um, the transportation in this area. In other words, there's checkpoints and so forth that uh, people have to go through uh, to be able to get from one place to the other. Uh, and the Israelis obviously control not just the transportation, but communication. They control much of the other infrastructure in this region as well. So very difficult for the Palestinians to gain any sorts of uh, unity uh, in this region. Their unity really is based on their opposition to Israeli control. Um, 
And then, of course, we have the Gaza Strip over here. And as I said, the Israelis left this area. Um, uh, they did occupy this area and then left. Uh, uh, but since that time, and we'll see some images, the, uh, the, the, uh, the wall that the uh, Israelis are building around here uh, to try to prevent uh, uh, terrorists from coming in. Well, there's two different sides to the story. Israelis claim they're trying to prevent terrorists from coming in. And uh, the people in Gaza uh, uh, claim that the Israelis are trying to uh, grab more of their land and really trying to uh, control the access in and out of the region. So here's the wall that I've been talking about. Um, so the Israelis actually really control this entire border area, as I mentioned before. And they're also building a wall around the West Bank area once again. Uh, they argue it is to prevent um, terrorists from coming into the area, but the Israelis or the uh, Palestinians claim it's to grab more of their land and enable the Israelis to build more and more settlements on um, on their territory. And this is an image of the wall. So uh, talking about some of the politics of fundamentalism, um, uh, Islamic fundamentalism uh, really originated in Iran in 1978, 1979, when the Shiite Muslim clerics overthrew the Shah of Iran. The Shah, it's actually interesting how the Shah came to power. Um, in the early 1950s, Iraq had a democratically, uh, a democratically elected government that was run by Mohammed Mossadegh. Um, the United States uh, saw Mossadegh as a socialist, and they were uh, the fear was that uh, Mossadegh would nationalize the uh, oil um, resources in, in Iran, and the United States and the British obviously couldn't allow that to happen because the people who were drilling for oil were British and U.S. Uh, firms. And, of course, if the... Um, if the Mossadegh uh, government uh, nationalized them, then the U.S. and British firms would lose out. Uh, so um, the uh, CIA, along with the British, uh, helped to overthrow and uh, overthrow the Mossadegh government and actually murdered uh, or assassinated uh, Mohammed Mossadegh. And in his place, they returned the Shah of Iran. Um, and the, um, the Shah of Iran was a really a, a very brutal, um, uh, uh, was an authoritarian, pro-Western, and brutal dictator. He was very harsh to his people. But the, he was the U.S. man, uh, so to speak, in Iran. Uh, he bought a lot of weapons. The U.S. helped train his army so that he could maintain control over his country uh, and so forth. And eventually the people uh, uh, protested against his rule. And he was overthrown in 1979, and the Ayatollah Khomeini took control of the country in that time, and proclaimed Iran an Islamic state. Um, and the Ayatollah actually is a religious title. Um, this uh, um, fundamentalism, if you want to call it that, or revivalism, or extremism, however you want to phrase it, spread to other countries uh, throughout the region. Sudanese fundamentalists overthrew democracy in 1989 in a civil war that killed up to 2 million people and displaced 5 million people. 
fundamentalist uh, in the north, uh, non-Muslim in the south, as I mentioned before, and, and uh, most recently uh, South Sudan gained its independence from uh, the northern part of the country. In Algeria since 1992, fundamentalists uh, appeared to lead in uh, I'm sorry, Algeria since 1992. Fundamentalists appeared to lead in 1991. Nationalist military leaders nullified the election, suspended democracy to keep the fundamentalists out. Bombings, kidnappings, assassinations uh, are part of the conflict. In 1998, villages of unarmed pe uh, peasants were armed and killed. And of course, we have the, uh, um, uh, uh, the Taliban and Afghanistan, which are uh, thought to have uh, largely um, emanated um, in Saudi Arabia, uh, and actually uh, very fundamentalist preaching by uh, what are known as Wahhabi um, Muslims, uh, which are extremely fundamentalist, and really anti-Western, really want the West out of uh, the middle, the what we're calling the Middle East, and all. Um, Muslim countries, uh, because they really want to unify Muslim countries into one big country uh, to have an Islamic caliphate, as they call it. Uh, okay, um, so uh, all these things are religious, they're ethnic uh, conflicts, uh, they lead to political aspirations by certain groups of people, and what they really do is contribute to instability throughout the region. Um, the map here obviously shows us um, different areas. And what I really wanted to point out uh, in this map, obviously, is the Kurdish territories. And we've been talking about that quite a bit. And you can see the Kurdish territories are colored green in this area, in this map. And this is, uh, much of this area is uh, what the Kurds would like to uh, declare, would like to declare an independent country and call it Kurdistan. What I really point, wanted to point out uh, is um, uh, Iraq, which is really a very ethnically diverse country. Uh, and again, it's going to be extremely hard for any leader to unify this country because all these different ethnicities have their own agendas. So we have Shia Arabs in this area. And remember, um, Iran is largely a Shia country. Uh, and so Iran would essentially support <clears throat> any, uh, uh, any uh, political activity that the Shias, uh, Arabs in uh, the southern part of Iraq would uh, would uh, try to implement. Then, of course, we have the Sunni uh, Sunni Arabs within Iraq, as you can see, kind of in the central part of the country. And then, obviously, we have some areas where the two overlap as well. And so, uh, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni Arab, and he was really able to uh, not necessarily unify the country, but through his uh, brutal tactics, was able to uh, limit uh, political uh, dissension uh, against his government in, in the area. So, and then you could see, also see that the Sunnis overlap with the Kurds as well. So, some of the other conflicts within the region we have uh, political, uh, we have a religious conflict in Lebanon. Um, when Lebanon gained its independence, there was a unique power sharing agreement that was uh, uh, agreed upon by the French who colonized the areas and the people of Lebanon. The president was a Maronite Christian, the prime minister was a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of the uh, parliament was a Shiite Muslim. Now, since, because of the rapid population growth of Muslims, um, 
they wanted more control and they actually wanted to overthrow the Maronite president. Uh, and that was an ongoing conflict for a number uh, of years within Lebanon. In 1970s, uh, Palestinian refugees fled to Lebanon and this uh, used Lebanon as a base for attacks on Israel. And this flooding also spread throughout Lebanon. So Lebanon's uh, capital of Beirut was essentially destroyed. Um, there has been, uh, I guess, some rebuilding of Beirut and, and of the country. But again, the Syrian problem is uh, overflowing into Lebanon and the conflict with Israel continues as well. Uh, as I mentioned, the Iraqi borders were uh, drawn by outsiders, uh, by the British in 1932, and uh, this created this uh, country of very diverse ethnic groups. Desert Storm in 1991 was uh, the US uh, versus Iraq because uh, Iraq had invaded Kuwait uh, because they accused Kuwait of taking uh, drilling kind of, uh, I guess, horizontally under Iraqi territory. Uh, to uh, take some of their oil. Um, Kurds, obviously we've talked about the Kurds already. Um, and there's also a, a conflict in the Mediterranean between Greece and Turkey over Cyprus. Um, there's ancient ties in Cyprus to Greeks. Um, under Ottoman control though, um, uh, Cyprus was under Ottoman control in the 1500s and then became a British colony in 1900. So from the 1500s up to about 1900, uh, this area was under British control. And so there's a strong British influence, or I'm sorry, Turkish influence in the region as well. So there's a, there was a civil war between Turkish and Greek uh, Cypriots, uh, citizens, these are the citizens of Cyprus and the United Nations established a green line uh, to separate the two groups. Um, Obviously, there's uh, other conflicts in the region, Western Sahara and Morocco. Um, um, there's a conflict between those two uh, countries over territory. Libya has financed finan uh, financed terrorism against Israel, uh, uh, allegedly financed terrorism against Israel. Um, U.S. bombed Libya in 1986 in retaliation for terrorist act acts. Libyan conflicts with Egypt and, Ta and Chad as well. Uh, Sudan civil war has spilled into Ethiopia, Eritrea, Chad, and Uganda, largely as a result of uh, refugees fleeing the Sudan and going into these countries. Uh, there was also the Iraqi-Iranian war in, in the 1980s. Uh, I, th I think you're starting to get the picture here. There's uh, a whole bunch of different conflicts that have erupted in this region um, over time. Um, the Iraqi uh, and Iranian uh, war was a desire to, uh, was the Iraqis uh, desire to gain access, more access to, more port access uh, in the area. And, and this is also another reason for the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And not only to gain port access, but to gain access of some of the islands in the Persian Gulf. So um, these are some of the wide and varied uh, political problems in this area, uh, as you can see. Uh, and the outcome of many of these conflicts is yet to be decided, at least completely. And certainly many or any of these conflicts that have kind of uh, been uh, uh, quelled, at least for the time being, could 
really become problems again. So let's move on and take a look at the political geography, or I'm sorry, the economic and social, uh, economic geography and social development of the region. Uh, and first, you can see uh, crude petroleum uh, in, in 2008, uh, crude petroleum production in 2008. And you can see uh, Saudi Arabia actually leads the region, but we have some other oil producing countries, mostly along the Persian Gulf area uh, in the region. And then many of the other countries really don't have much uh, crude production at all. And then we have natural gas production, as you can see once again. Uh, natural gas is very often a byproduct of, uh, of crude oil. So very often where you find crude oil, you'll also find uh, natural gas. Okay, so oil obviously is uh, very unevenly distributed in this region. Saudi Arabia, Iran, United Arab Emirates, Libya, Algeria, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait all produce oil. Morocco, Sudan, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, and Lebanon have very little oil. Turkey produces oil but must uh, import more than it produces to meet its own needs. This region has 28% of the world's proven oil supplies and only 7% of the world's population. So they really produce much more than they need and that's why they're unable, unable um, to uh, export so much oil to the rest of the world. Um, so um, regional uh, economic patterns, fluctuation in oil prices causes a shift in economic well-being. When oil prices are high, obviously lots of revenue are coming into the region, uh, and those uh, revenues can be used, hopefully, to improve the living standards of the populations in the, in the country. Uh, when oil prices decline, obviously not as much revenue is coming into the region. Um, so as I mentioned, the higher income oil exporters are Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, which are sometimes referred to the Persian Gulf countries in this area. Um, oil prices have, uh, have really hiked in, since the 1970s uh, with the first uh, oil embargo on much of the rest of the world. Um, and then they declined uh, again in the 1980s and 1990s. And then once again increased with the uh, second, well, with the invasion of Iraq in the early 1990s, uh, because that uh, uh, promoted a fear throughout the global uh, oil markets. And then once again uh, in the uh, early 2000s with the second invasion of Iraq by U.S. troops. Uh, as I mentioned, some countries use their resources to diversify their countries. Uh, not everyone benefits. Rural, sh rural Shiite Muslims in eastern Saudi Arabia are less well off, mainly because much of the country is um, Sunni. Um, for, as I've been telling you uh, before in other lectures, foreign workers come from Jordan, Egypt, Yemen, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and even the Philippines uh, to uh, earn uh, wages, and then they send much of that money back home to their uh, families in the forms of uh, in the form of uh, remittances. Some of the lower income oil exporters are Algeria, Libya, Iraq, and Iran. Both Iraq and Iran have relatively large um, supplies of oil, but because of fighting, um, warfare, and uh, the overthrow of governments and so forth in the region, it's really um, 
tempered their ability to produce oil. Many Algerians migrate to Europe, as I mentioned before, as, especially to France for better economic in, uh, opportunities. Uh, Libya's uh, political power, political hostility towards other countries and its reputation as an outlaw nation um, and its heavy uh, military buildup limited its economic prosperity, uh, sanctions on Iraq, and then of course the um, uh, of course the um, uh, uh, the two invasions on the country have really uh, meant that the oil production has declined quite significantly. And what's actually interesting is in Iraq, um, after the invasion, one of the you know one of the uh, arguments that the U.S. government used was that uh, with the increasing production of oil coming out of Iraq, that will pay the United States for its military in intervention in the country. And what's actually interesting is that China has really been the beneficiary of that. Chinese companies have actually come in uh, and helped to revitalize Iraq's oil industry. And much of the oil that is being produced in Iraq is now being exported to China, which obviously needs the oil as well. Uh, Prospering without oil. Some countries in this region do prosper without oil. Israel has the highest standard of living in the region and obviously has very little oil. It has, product, has a productive agricultural um, um, sector of its economy and, and a very productive industry as well. It's a high-tech leader um, uh, in the region. It's a, becoming a global center for computer and other telecommunications products. Uh, however, political difficulties and the uh, high spending on military uh, really uh, hamper its efforts to uh, continue its, uh, its industrialization. Turkey has a diversified economy, uh, particularly agricultural, grows cotton, tobacco, wheat, fruit industry, and uh, its industry is composed of textiles, food, and chemicals. Uh, Istanbul is really a very cosmopolitan city and is a regional finance and investment center. Uh, it is a very important tourist uh, destination in the region, and it's in the early stages with trying to uh, uh, become a member of the uh, European Union. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, um, because Turkey really uh, would like to join the European Union. It, uh, because of its uh, secular uh, government, it really sees itself uh, more closely related to Europe than it does to other countries in um, the, this region. Uh, some of the regional patterns of poverty, uh, Sudan's uh, economy has, has been ruined by civil war, there's been food shortages, um, in spite of, uh, of uh, the fertile soils, particularly in the southern part of the country, um, and obviously a lack of in, uh, infrastructure. Um, and then we also have, um, you can see, uh, we also have um, poverty is widespread in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. Illiteracy is widespread. Morocco suffers from a brain drain as many people, as I mentioned, uh, the better educated people leave the region to go to France and other European countries. Um, uh, so we, we refer to that as a brain drain, as many of the best and brightest seek their fortunes outside of Morocco. Egypt's prospects are unclear, has um, 
smaller government deficits, but obviously with the uh, Arab Spring uprisings and the overthrow of the president, uh, it's really interesting. It'll be really interesting to see uh, because we have an interim government um, that's controlled by the military who promises uh, free and democratic elections, but up to this point uh, has not really declared when those elections will be held. And now we're starting to see the second Arab uprising as the people are starting to rise up against the uh, military government. Um, Yemen is the poorest country uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. It's largely rural subsistence agricultural uh, economy. So looking at this map uh, that we have in front of us, you can see cell phone users. I guess that we can use that as a measure of economic development. You can see in many parts of the region very low cell phone usage and internet user, users per 100 people. Now, uh, what's interesting is um, uh, this was map is 2007 and, two, and both, you know, both, these both of the data, the data for both these uh, indicators are from 2007. And if you watch the news at all or listen to the news at all, you know much of the Arab Spring uprising in the region uh, was enabled uh, by the use of cell phone technology and internet use, uh, usage. Uh, and that's really how people got their messages uh, out about certain uprisings and where they would be occurring and when they would be occurring and things like that. Um, so it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So I suspect the data on this map is probably somewhat uh, out of date, quite frankly, as um, there's probably more users than what these maps actually indicate. Looking at some of the development indicators uh, that we've been talking about, you can see the GNI per capita. Some of the countries, particularly uh, the uh, oil-rich countries, would be declared um, probably uh, middle-income, if not upper-income countries. For example, Kuwait would probably be considered an upper-income country. But the thing that we always need to keep in mind is that this data really does not indicate uh, equality. And so even though we may have a high uh, GNI per capita in the country, uh, much of that uh, GNI, per, uh, much of that might be controlled by very few uh, people within the country, and, and, and there might be a lot of inequality, which is, quite frankly, the case in lots of these countries. Um, the the wealth is controlled by uh, a, a very uh, a relatively few uh, number of people, a relatively small proportion of the population. Uh, you can see uh, income or uh, GNI. GDP growth uh, in the region is pretty uh, substantial, except for some of those areas that are continue to experience uh, ethnic and political conflicts, such as in Gaza and the West Bank, Iraq, of course, and so forth. Uh, uh, percent of the population living below uh, $2 a day. You can see there's a lot of missing data in this region. Okay, life expectancies uh, appear to be pretty good in this region relative to some other areas of the world uh, where they're not so good would be uh, the Sudan, uh, Western Sahara, and Yemen. And a very young population, uh, I'm sorry, very young population uh, in this country that we sell in the demographic population and under five mortality uh, in 1990 uh, was pretty high and we start to see some improvements 
in some of the countries uh, throughout the region. So things are definitely improving. improving. Uh, gender equality in this region is not as good as it uh, could be, uh, mainly that's largely due to the cultural influences of, uh, not necessarily due to Islam, but some of the cultural influences uh, and cultural practices in the region. Uh, so we've already talked about some of these areas, and, and so I'm not going to repeat uh, this. Uh, uh, Persian Gulf uh, is uh, prospering uh, because of the oil reserves, uh, Israel, uh, high-tech industry, strong agricultural sector as well. Uh, impacts of globalization on the region. Uh, you can see uh, there's been some solar projects that have uh, Evolved, uh, and you can see some of the uh, power transportation uh, to Europe, for example, to other areas, Turkey and, and places like that, and then also into Europe. And then some of the second power transportation networks uh, that have been established in this region. Uh, so uh, let me uh, take a look here at some of the social uh, development. Uh, we already know Israel has a very high standard of living. Uh, even some of the wealthy countries uh, have some difficulties. 24% of Saudi Arabians are illiterate. Infant mortality uh, is, uh, some, uh, is higher uh, than uh, we might expect for a rich country. Uh, high rates of illiteracy, low average life expectancies, obviously, in Sudan and Yemen. Uh, the role of women is influenced by Islam, as I mentioned before, uh, has the world's lowest uh, female labor participation. Turkey's women are uh, mostly free, but still rare, rare, rarely work in retail, where they would con come in contact with foreigners and so forth. Saudi women are prohibited from driving cars. Uh, Iranian uh, women obviously wear the hijab or the veil uh, because it is a theocracy and educational opportunities for women are improving uh, in many parts of the region, but education is usually uh, segregated by sex, uh, but in most parts of the region is available. Uh, global economic relationships, the, obviously the developed world relies on oil from this region. Coil, uh, I'm sorry, crude oil brings in about 70% of Saudi Arabia's export income Refined oil, petrochemicals are on the rise and currently bring in another 20% of Saudi Arabia's um, uh, foreign export revenues. Uh, other exports, uh, other imports are important. Turkey, ex uh, Turkey exports textiles and food products and manufactured goods. Israel exports cut diamonds, electronics, machinery parts, and so forth. Flow of workers are also important for the, as I mentioned before, for the remittances that they send back um, to their home countries and, and so forth. And um, uh, much of the capital made in this region is held in foreign banks and investment, although that's beginning to change in some of the regions as uh, places such as Dubai that's pictured in this uh, uh, map or in these images, uh, are beginning to uh, house their own banks and so forth and using the funds for that to invest in their own uh, infrastructure and so forth, particularly in their urban infrastructure and also particularly 
trying to develop resorts in the Persian Gulf area. And this image on the left is an illustration of that, uh, of one of those resorts. Uh, they're actually building um, several islands uh, that's uh, in the Persian Gulf to, as resorts to try to attack, attract tourists uh, to the region. Uh, so we've talked about the uh, social development gender in the region, and it's uh, changing and shifting um, depending upon who is in power at any particular time. If it's a strongly uh, Islamist uh, country or fundamentalists are in control, then uh, 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 the gender equity tends to be lo uh, lower. And... Uh, uh, Resources and, ac uh, and accessibility for females, uh, resources and accessibility to things like education and other opportunities tend to be lower for females. Uh, and so what we really have is a complex traditional societies in the region. So that uh, kind of brings me to the end of Southwest Asia and North Africa. Uh, as I mentioned before, Southwest Asia and North Africa are located at the crossroads of three uh, continents. They're located at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and of course Europe. This, along with petroleum resources of the region, assures a global role uh, for this region uh, for the foreseeable uh, future. The colonial experience of this region was not particularly long, but the long-term consequences continue to exist today in the form of lingering boundary issues. This, re this region has significance to three of the world's religions, as I've talked about, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which share common philosophical as well as geographical roots uh, within the region. In the 1980s and 1990s, the rise of, and diffusion of Islamic fundamentalism has been an important influence in the region and obviously has impacted uh, the rest of the world as well. Much of the region's economy is based on petroleum and related products, uh, and for this reason, the economy is prone to follow the fortunes of the oil industry. So, as I said, that brings us to end to the end of our lectures on uh, Southwest Asia and North Africa.